Right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. While you're turning there, I just wanted to, if, if you guys didn't know, Alex and Jenny got married yesterday. Many of you were here at the, at the wedding. And I'll tell you what, young people, uh, when you get married, do it like that. It was awesome. They, they, and they designed all that. It was, that was definitely not me. But they, they turned a wedding ceremony into a worship service. And so it was phenomenal. And Robin did a phenomenal job. She is probably totally exhausted, but she, uh, yes, very much. You can clap for her. <laughs> um, just putting it all together. And I would, I would guess Robin could probably use some help today um, getting some chairs and some tables back into a truck. So if anybody's available after the service, I'm not sure when she's going over there to get stuff from the reception. Pavilion at 1 o'clock today. So if anybody's available to go to Mount Washington at 1 o'clock to help load up chairs, I'm sure she could use some help with that. But so much, so thank you so much uh, for, for being there and for putting so much work into it. You can be praying for them. They're on their honeymoon, and I am sure they are enjoying time together. And I uh, look forward to having them back here, here soon. All right. Today's passage, Luke 13, verses 1 through 9, is not a popular passage. This is, in fact, uh, out of context, the words of Jesus can sound very harsh at times. This is one of those passages. Uh, the tagline for today's passage is Jesus saying, Repent, or you will all likewise perish. You probably don't have that on a mug at home. Um, in fact, that, that's a phrase, when I hear it, the first thing that comes to my mind is like that old school uh, sidewalk preacher with his sandwich board and his gospel tracks that are really outdated and they've got weird graphics on them and he's got this big sign with a bunch of exclamation points on it and all this list of people that are going to hell. Okay, that's what I think of when I, I hear that, that passage. And while we wrestle with this, I don't want to go down that path on trying to manipulate people into false guilt. But I also don't want to water down this passage because Jesus is speaking to us the truth in love. And sometimes the truth is hard to hear. It's not easy to talk about repentance. Repentance is a truth we don't like talking about. We don't like hearing about it because repentance causes us to confront our own sinfulness. And our prideful hearts don't like to think about that at all. I would encourage you, don't tune me out though. Uh, this is God's word. I think often we, we're okay with recognizing on a theoretical basis that we're sinners, okay? No, nobody wants to say, look, I'm perfect, okay? And so everybody's willing to admit that they're a sinner, but we really don't like to be reminded about the specifics of our sins. It's not something that we would like to talk about. In fact, we would rather, very much rather be like Adam and Eve and run from our sins or hide our sins rather than dealing with them honestly. Or another strategy we often use is we would rather compare our lives to other people's lives because you can always find a worse sinner than yourself so that you can feel better about yourself and your condition. And so Jesus today is going to be confronting our pride. And I pray that we will see his grace and we will see his love in it. And so the, the context of today's passage is that Jesus has been speaking to this large crowd of people. He's called them, what, hypocrites, right? 
because they have not recognized who he is. They've also not seen their need to repent and to reconcile with God. And so we pick up at the beginning of chapter 13, and the crowd is telling Jesus about this horrific tragedy that has happened. And so let's pray one more time, and then we're going to walk through this passage together. Father, this is a hard passage for us to hear, and so we need your Spirit to soften our hearts. Help us to see our need to repent. Help us to see our, the, the, the benefit of repentance. And help us to see your grace in it. Open up our eyes to see your glory in this passage. That we would be blown away by your love towards us, even in the hard tone that Jesus takes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13 in Luke. So there were some, some present in this large crowd. There's some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pretty graphic verse right there, right? And so Pilate, that, yes, this is the, the infamous Pilate, the governor of Judea. This is the same guy who would reside over Jesus' trial before his crucifixion. And we don't know exactly what caused Pilate to do this, but evidently some Galileans were slaughtered while they were in the temple making ritual sacrifices. I mean, can you imagine how awful that would be? That would be like the mayor of Shepherdsville sending a crew in here to slash a few of our throats and mix our blood with the communion. That'd be awful. I can't imagine. Luke also does not explain why some of the people present in the crowd are bringing this up to Jesus. I don't know, maybe they, and this is all conjecture, maybe they were trying to deflect some of Jesus' critical words towards them. They're trying to distract him. Hey, what do you think about this, Jesus? Or maybe this is something that's pretty fresh in their mind, something that's happened recently, and there's this debate going on, and they want to hear what Jesus has to say. He, they want to hear Jesus' take on a controversial issue, because evidently some had basically bought into the idea of karma here. And so they, they thought that these Galileans who suffered such a horrible tragedy, they suffered it because they must have been worse sinners than everybody else in Galilee. That's what they were thinking. And so I, I want you to pause for a moment and think about how you might answer their questions. What's your theology of suffering? When... Tragedies happen like the shooting at the Virginia Beach. How do you explain that? How do you explain why those things happen? Notice Jesus' words. He probably explains it a little bit differently than most of us would. Look at verse 2. He answers them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So that's the context of where that passage comes from. Jesus is basically saying that, look, these Galileans, their sins were not extraordinary 
extraordinarily horrible. Their sins were ordinarily horrible, just like yours, just like mine. And if you don't repent, if I don't repent, we will all have a horrible ending. And notice Jesus doesn't say that these Galileans, they're just as bad as everybody else and how awful it was that the tragedy that they went through. He doesn't emphasize the tragedy. He doesn't emphasize their death. What does he emphasize? He emphasizes our sinfulness, that our sin is what was horrific, not the tragedy. And so if we understand the depth of our depravity compared to the holiness of God, we should never think that God is unjust when tragedy strikes, when disaster hits. We should never moan at God and complain, why do bad things happen to good people? Because the Bible makes it clear, there are no innocent human beings. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous. No, not one, Romans 3.10. And so what should shock us is not when some calamity takes people's lives. What should shock us is that any of us are spared another day to be able to repent. What should amaze us is not that guilty sinners perish, but that God gives grace to us and he is slow to anger. That is what should blow our mind. That is what we should be amazed by. Now Jesus uses a second illustration to drive home his his point here. Look at verse 4. He gives another example of a tragedy. He says, or what about those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so he's, he's saying again, do you think that this random, quote, random tragedy is God's judgment on these 18? I mean, do you think that they were worse offenders before God than everybody else in Jerusalem? And so God just waited till they were all like lined up and then blew this building on them? No, they're not worse sinners. They're normal sinners. And all sinners who don't repent will likewise perish. And so we need to wrestle with what he means by perish. Does Jesus, is Jesus saying that, look, if we don't repent, then we need to be watchful because a building might just, like, fall on us? <laughs> if you look at the context, though, this passage, and you look at the word perish used in the rest of the New Testament, you're going to see that it becomes obvious that perish cannot simply mean a physical death. Jesus is not saying that if we don't repent, we will suffer some kind of horrific physical death. In fact, it's actually much worse than that. Jesus here in this passage, he connects the word perish with the word sin and repentance. It is caused, perishing is caused by our sin and it is escaped through repentance. So think about other places in the New Testament where that word perish shows up. Very famous one, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so perish in that passage is the opposite of what? Eternal life. Again, same thing, John 10, 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall not perish forever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 
the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so perishing is the opposite of being saved. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now it's interesting, that word lost, the original Greek word is the same word here, perish. And so essentially Jesus came to seek and to save the perishing, the lost. Hebrews 9.27 says that uh, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then after that comes judgment. And so Jesus describes that judgment in Matthew 25. It's a separation of the sheep and the goats is how he describes it, that one will go away to eternal punishment and the other one to eternal righteous, righteousness and to eternal life. And so to perish in this passage means to experience eternal death, eternal lostness, eternal separation, eternal punishment. So this means, and this is where it becomes very significant, we can't just ignore this. It means that repentance is necessary for salvation. Listen very careful. You are not a Christian if you have not repented. Uh, there was a movement, uh, and I fell into this when I was in college. Uh, I would call it a cheap grace movement that teaches that it is possible for you to accept Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. That you can be saved, and yet at the same time still live as what they would call a carnal Christian. In other words, you can have faith in Christ without actually repenting from your sins, and Jesus says no. Repentance is required. Without repentance, you will surely perish. Even in the Old Testament, Psalm 7, 12 and 13, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. In other words, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And so even in the Old Testament, failure to, to repent leads to judgment from God. But repentance results in grace from God. We go to the New Testament, Matthew 4, 17. Jesus is proclaiming. How does he start off his ministry? By proclaiming, by preaching that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke, verses, uh, chapter 24, verses 46 through 47, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for, for, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And so an essential element of proclaiming the gospel is repentance. We have to talk about repentance as we're proclaiming the gospel. Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 37 38. Now when they heard this, and so this is right after Peter had proclaimed the gospel. It says, after they heard this, the people that Peter was talking to, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So they're asking, what, in light of this, how can we be saved? What, what should we do in light of the gospel? And Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, so that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, you see this, the importance of repentance and conversion. Now, some of you may be thinking, 
I thought salvation comes through faith alone. Are you saying that it's, it's faith plus something else? Are you saying it's faith plus repentance that is necessary for salvation? But I want you to understand that faith and repentance are two sides to the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Um, let, me, let me try to illustrate this. All right, so let's say, just use my table. Let's say this table represents our sin, okay? And so this is, this is the cross. This is Jesus. Before we are believers, our sin is what we love. I mean, it's all shiny and sparkly, and it's, it's, uh, it, it, but it's what we treasure. It's what we look to for satisfaction. It's what we look to for really our salvation. This is what we're looking to to feel happy, to find purpose in our lives. And so we hold on to our sins. And as we're holding on to our sins, what are we turning our back to? Our back is to Christ. And so when conversion happen, happens and Jesus calls to us, he calls us and he opens up our eyes to see the significance of the gospel, what happens? We let go of our sins. And instead of treasuring our sins, we turn, we repent from our sins and we turn in faith to trust Christ, to treasure Christ, to look to Him for our satisfaction and for our salvation. And so you can't have one without the other. When you turn from your sins, when you repent, you're turning towards Christ. You're placing your faith in Him. So you can't have faith without repentance. You can't have repentance without faith. Does that make sense? All right, so next Jesus he shares a parable to emphasize the urgency of repentance. Look back at your passage. And he shares this because those 18 that died because the tower fell on them and the, the Galileans who perished, they, they didn't see it coming. They didn't see their death coming. They weren't prepared for it. And so Jesus shares this parable in verse 6. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for thee, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year alone, until I dig around it and I put on manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. And so he basically just pleads for another year, pleads for more, more time. And Jesus' point in this parable is, like, your opportunity to repent will not last forever. But the good news is that, that we have all been given a second chance in God. God in His mercy has given us extra time. And so don't put off repentance. Don't put it on a to-do list and say, I'll take care of that later. Time is short. We are all living with borrowed time. And so the application for unbelievers here is very simple. Don't wait to get right with God. Get right with God right now. Not by trying to be a good person, not trying harder to be a good person, but by repenting from your sins and turning in faith to trust in Christ for your salvation. 
You need to fully rely on Christ to save you and to change you. And the application for believers is the same. Don't wait. Don't wait to tell others to repent and turn towards Christ because there are people perishing all around us. You should be praying for your lost neighbors, your friends, your family members, your co-workers, the people you go to school with. By name, you should be praying with, for them often. You should have an urgency about you. You should be looking for opportunities to invite them to hear the gospel. And you should be looking for opportunities to be able to share the gospel with them. Um, we're going to be talking about Bullet Blast, where we've got half of Shepherdsville going to be in our backyard. We're going to set up a, a family fun zone. We are not setting up a family fun zone just to give kids a fun place to play. Okay? We are setting up that family fun zone so that they might we might have an opportunity to be able to build a relationship with them to proclaim the gospel to them so they might respond and repent and not perish. Mark 12 Ministries is not simply about helping the homeless get back up on their feet. It's about helping them reconcile to God so that they might not perish. And so as we proclaim the gospel, let's not shy away from talking about repentance. Repentance is us and God calling people who are headed towards walking off a cliff, helping them turn around. There is grace in that. When, when God grants you repentance, there is grace in that. Repentance is a good thing. Salvation depends on it. And so since, since repentance is, so, is necessary for salvation, since repentance is so vital we ought to know what it is, okay? We, we ought to recognize what true repentance is because there's a whole lot of misunderstandings. There's a whole lot, a lot of misconceptions about what repentance actually is. And so I want to take a look at what, what does the Bible actually say? What do we see? What do we know about repentance? And so I'm going to actually start with a, a quote from Wayne Grudem in his systematic uh, theology book, this is kind of, a, if you're taking notes, this, this should be in there. Uh, it's a helpful definition, though. It's kind of heady, so bear with me. We're going to walk through it. He says, repentance is this. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Notice the different components of this definition. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin. And so repentance starts in our heart, but it involves our whole person. It's a decision to turn away from our sin. It's a renouncing of it. Now, this doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again, okay? But it does mean that you are going to wage war against your sin. It's a sincere commitment to forsake it, to walk in obedience to Christ. And so repentance is not mere sorrow over sin. A lot of times that's where we stop with repentance. We feel sorry about what we did that was wrong, but it never changes. We don't have a real hatred towards it. We don't, it doesn't change our actions. And so, yes, it does involve a deep remorse, but it's more than that. It involves a sincere decision to forsake it. And so, 
I want to make it clear, repentance does not stop at conversion. Uh, repentance is not a one-time act, it's a continuous action. Yes, there is a one-time act at conversion where you repent initially from your sins and, and you, you, the war starts there and you turn towards Christ. But just like after conversion, you don't stop believing in Jesus, you don't stop placing your faith in Jesus, you also don't stop ever repenting from your sins after conversion because we continue to sin. And so after conversion, your repentance doesn't save you, okay? You've already been saved. Your sins have been wiped away completely. And so your repentance after salvation, why do you do it then, okay? Why, Why do we repent after our conversion? It's not for salvation, but it is for your relationship with God. Think about this, any relationship, when you wrong somebody, reconciliation does not happen until repentance happens. And so for the health of your relationship with God, that's why you repent. Uh, when you fail to repent, it hinders your prayers. Uh, Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would, have not, would not have listened to me. Um, it also, it stunts your joy in Christ. When you fail to repent, it stunts your joy in Christ. Psalm 51, when David is repenting and he's confessing his sin to the Lord, what does he pray? He says, restore the joy of my salvation. That's what repentance helps us do. It restores the joy of our salvation. So there's four parts to repentance that I want to make very clear. Uh, it's knowledge, disposition, action, and acceptance. Okay, so first of all, there's got to be knowledge. You have to know, you have to understand that what you're doing is actually a sin. Okay, often we're blinded. Often it's easier to see sin in other people than it is to see it in our own hearts. But we need to be able to acknowledge that what we're doing is wrong. So knowing is half the battle, right, though? Okay, what is that, G.I. Joe or... I can't remember that, what that's from. But <laughs> um, so, yeah, knowing is half the battle. So knowledge is part of it, but it's not enough. You've got to have a disposition. Uh, your disposition, you, you should have an internal sorrow and a hatred towards sin. Okay, that's part of repentance. In fact, this is one of the signs that you're truly saved. Okay, did you know that? that one, if you're wondering, okay, am I truly saved? One of the signs that you can know that the gospel is truly significant in your hearts and you truly have been converted and the Holy Spirit is working in you is that, you, that there's this hatred towards your sin that grows in your heart. And understand that if you want to grow in your hatred towards sin, like you recognize that, man, I just don't hate my sin nearly enough. You don't grow in hatred towards your own sin by beating yourself up. You, you don't grow in hatred towards your sin by focusing on your sin, you grow in your hatred towards sin by focusing on God's love towards you. And the more you recognize God's love towards you, the more you're going to hate your sin and what you've done. The same is true. Like, the more that I know and I, I, and I recognize my wife's love for me, the more I hate it when I mess up and I do something that disappoints her. The same is true with God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. 
And so there's knowledge, there's disposition, and then there's action. There's got to be a decision to turn away from sin. And sometimes this means you take radical steps. This is why Jesus says you gouge out your eye, you, you cut off your hand if necessary to stop sinning. I've, I've seen guys who have literally shoved a knife into their, their computer uh, or, or literally put nails through their computer's hard drive. Sometimes, though, repentance is not that radical. Sometimes repentance just simply means you go to bed earlier at night <laughs> so you get a good night's sleep so that you can wake up earlier. Or maybe it just means you actually set your alarm so that you spend some time uh, in the Word in the morning or you're getting yourself ready for worship. Sometimes repentance is, is small decisions. In fact, I would say the majority of repentance are, are, are just making those small decisions in the, the mundane parts of life as we slowly are sanctified and, and turned in the image of Christ and making those little decisions that lead to action. Okay, so knowledge, disposition, action. Number four, acceptance. And this is one that we don't often think about when we think about repentance. But repentance includes the belief that you have actually been forgiven. And this is where the joy comes in, right? You need to trust that God has removed your sins. As far as the east is from the west, He has removed your sins. And He will renew your joy. And so I want to I give you a, an illustration. I stole this illustration from another another pap- pastor down in, in Texas, but I thought it was so good. I want to give you an illustration that helps you understand what true repentance is. Um, and it's weeding, okay? Repentance is like pulling weeds. Uh, when I was young, my parents, uh, actually my grandparents had some property out in the country, and my, so my parents had this huge garden. And I mean, we had all sorts of vegetables. I, in, in fact, I really, I don't even like, like, Spaghetti squash is on my, I never really care to see spaghetti squash again because we had so many spaghetti squash. But during that time when we had that huge garden, I had to go out there on a weekly basis and weed the garden. And I hated it because it was hard work weeding the garden. It was never fun. You go out there with your hoe and you're just constantly, there's, and the weeds are constantly coming. They're relentless. They're always coming back. And so uh, th- th- there's some similarities between weeding uh, a garden and repentance. Number one, acknowledging that there are weeds is not the same thing as pulling them. Okay? <laughs> I can look out there and see all the weeds, but unless I actually go, so acknowledge, some people are really good at, at penance, but not very good at repentance. Okay, there's a difference. Some people are really good at acknowledging that, okay, I am a terrible person, and they will confess their sins to somebody else, and that will make them feel better about themselves, but they really haven't actually repented because there's no fruit that comes out of it. There's no change that comes out of it. Number two, being sad or angry that there are weeds is not the same thing as pulling them. Okay, I can look at my backyard and see all the weeds in my lawn and be sad that I haven't dealt with them like I should, but that doesn't change the weeds that are in my yard. And so regret is not repentance. Often we settle with a feeling of regret without actually it leading us to repentance. And Paul 
has a word for that. Actually, in 2 Corinthians 7, he describes a worldly grief that is possible that leads to death. And so there's the major difference between a worldly grief and a godly grief is that worldly grief immobilizes us while godly grief mobilizes us. Number three, it helps if you get to the root of the weed, okay? I can make my lawn look good for like a day or two if I mow it, right? And all the weeds look like grass. But eventually, over the next couple of days, the weeds are going to sprout up again. But it, if you get to the root, then uh, it, they disappear for a lot longer. Uh, and so simple like behavior modification, that's not repentance. Uh, you might, there's various reasons people change their behavior. You might be scared that you're going to get caught again. Or you might be scared that you're going to disappoint somebody or lose your job. You might be scared of the consequences, the, the, the human consequences. And, and I think God puts those consequences in our life for a reason. They help us and lead us to repentance at times, but just behavior modification by itself is not repentance. Repentance starts where? In the heart. It involves a heartfelt hatred towards your sin because you've offended God. Number four, it is easier to pull weeds out of soft ground. Okay, I loved it if we would go and pull weeds after it had just rained. And so you should pray for a soft heart. Often a good time to repent is after a worship gathering like this. God has been softening your heart. A good time to repent is often after you've spent some time in prayer or reading the Bible. But pray that God would soften your heart. Number five, some weeds are easier to pull out and some weeds are much more difficult. Uh, for me, after I was converted, um, one of the easy weeds for me, and this is not true for everybody, cursing, okay? I, my, I cleaned up my language pretty, that, that just wasn't, wasn't hard. One day I just said, okay, I'm not going to curse anymore. And that, it was easy for me. That's not true for everybody. But me worrying about my finances, that weed is still stuck in there. And I've been working at it for years. And I've been through financial peace. <laughs> Some weeds are easier to pull than others. Number six, some weeds are impossible to pull by yourself. There's some weeds that you need like a shovel to get them out of the ground because they've been there for so long and the, the roots have gotten so big. You physically can't pull them out. You need something. And so sin needs sometimes to be pulled out with an accountability partner. Sometimes to, to get rid of sin, you need, you need a counselor. Sometimes you need a missional community to surround you and to support you and to encourage you. Some weeds are impossible to pull out by yourself, and God did not design us to live the Christian life by ourselves. That's why gathering together on a, on a regular basis is so important, especially when things are going difficult in your home life, don't disappear here, okay? When things are going difficult in your home life, press into these relationships. Come be around believers, sing about the gospel, hear about the gospel. You need to be reminded more than ever when life is going difficult that Jesus loves you and cares for you. So don't disappear when things are going difficult. 
Sometimes weeds are impossible to pull out by yourself. That's why we need each other. This is why the church family exists. Number seven, pulling weeds is hard work. Okay, this is not a hard one to sell. Okay, repentance is never easy. It takes a ton of humility. It's hard, but it's worth it. Repentance, it reconciles you to God. It repairs your relationships, not just vertically, but horizontally. It frees us. I mean, there's such a freedom when you confess your sins and repent from them. It frees us from the bondage of sins. Number eight, weeds sometimes come back even after you've pulled them. Okay, that's just the reality. Living in a broken world, being broken people, you never stop pulling weeds. You're always going to be pulling them. Some, some weeds are just relentless. They just constantly come back. And so you can never let your guard down or they will come storming back. Number nine, some weeds are hidden. Okay, some weeds, they just kind of look like a, a regular plant. They look like the grass. All of us have blind spots. And so we need others to help help us. It, it's good for us to, to talk to and, uh, the, the passages Jesus talks about. First, get the plank out of your own eye so that what? So that you can get the speck out of your brother's eye, right? And so we are to do eye surgery with one another. First, we need to get the plank out of our own eye. And so we need to look inwardly, look at our own motivations. But we're supposed to be doing eye surgery on one another. We need to, to show each other where the blind spots are. I need you to show me my blind spots, the Word of God also serves to show us our blind spots. All right, and then finally, number 10. Uh, weeds are much easier to pull when they're small. Weeds are much easier to pull when they're small. The longer you ignore the weeds, the harder they're going to be to pull. And that's true whether it's an addiction or you're dealing with marriage issues. Uh, I've heard counselors say in, in marriage counseling, when a, marriage, when, when a couple comes in, often one of the first things they're going to say to you is, like, you didn't get yourself into this mess in a day. You're not going to get out of it in a day. And so young people, I would encourage you, pull the weeds early. The longer you ignore them, the harder they are to pull. Deal with your sins while they're small before they grow out of control. But I will say this, they never grow out of God's control. God will give you the strength to be able to pull them. And he provides the church family to help you do that. Don't ignore them. Jesus will help you. And so, even in the stern passage today, I, I hope you see there's a blessing in repentance. And so again, the application for unbelievers is don't wait. The application for believers is don't wait. We all need to be repenting. Luther said we, we have our whole lives should be lives of repentance. And so maybe today, especially if you're a young person who's kind of grown up in the church, and you, you've been here for a while, D don't think just because your family is Christians that that means you're a Christian. J just because you've been coming to, to church your whole life. I know there was a point, I, w I went to church my whole life, but I didn't realize my need for repentance. Maybe you've been 
going to church for a long time and you've never realized your need to turn from your sins, to wage war against sin, to say, look, I, Jesus, because of what you've done for me, because of the love that you've shown me, I'm going to stop trusting in my sin. I'm going to trust in you for salvation. If that's you, don't wait. God has given you a second chance. He's given you extended time, but we are all living in borrowed time. And unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that many in this room, you have granted repentance to us. You have given us the gift of realizing our need, recognizing our need, opening up our eyes to see our need to turn away from sin that offends you and turn towards you. And we thank you that you have given us the cross, that you have given us the, the means to be able to turn from our sins and turn towards you. And so we worship you because of that. We praise you. We thank you for granting us repentance. And I pray that we would live lives of repentance every single day. You would show us more and more. You would reveal to us more and more how we might repent and be more like you for your glory, that we might, that you might equip us and make us effective ministers to be able to proclaim repentance to others. Give us boldness to be able to proclaim this message to a world that doesn't think that they need it and soften their hearts so that they might recognize their need. In Jesus' name, amen.